So come, whether you have much faith or little, have tried to follow or are afraid you've failed. Come because it is his will that those who want to meet him might meet him here. Welcome to From the Narthex, a podcast about faith, life, and Anglicanism. This is your host, Ryan, along with... Jen. And today on the pod, we have uh, a special guest from the Diocese of Brandon, Bishop William. Welcome to the podcast, Bishop. Good to be here. Uh, today, we wanted to do something a bit more educational. We often get guests on to kind of talk about themselves, and hopefully we will learn a bit about you as a person through this conversation. But what we were kind of interested in learning is this church that we belong to, the Anglican Church, it seems like every time I turn a corner, I'm running into somebody who has a medal on saying that they do this, or they've got some sort of letters in front of their name. There's just a lot of titles in the Anglican church. And so what we thought would be really helpful for our listeners is to kind of go through kind of starting from our baptism and our first call to ministry as Christians and kind of work up through the various kind of ranks of the church, if you will, and um, get you to kind of explain what's going on with all of these titles. Okay, I'll do my best. So I'll, I'll pass it over to Jin uh, and we'll get going. All right. Um, this is a bit of a long question, but what kind of roles do the lay people have? Um, and why do Anglicans require licenses for certain ministries? And what are those? Ah, well, <clears throat> um, okay. So break it down again. What are the, uh, start again. Give me the, the three parts again so I don't miss them. Oh, uh, what kind of roles do the lay people have? Okay. Um, basically, everything in the church that's not uh, connected with the sacramental celebrations, um, anything that isn't specifically delegated to someone else, that's the laity's job. Um, baptismal ministry is a complete ministry, um, and out of the baptized, some are pulled aside to do specific tasks, specific things within the body of the church. But everything from governance and uh, canon law and um, finance and everything else, in the church, that's the job, including preaching, evangelism, um, outgoing outward ministry, outward facing ministry, like working in social service, like feeding the poor, clothing the naked, uh, visiting the sick and the imprisoned. All, all Christians, all baptized Christians have a responsibility to do those things. So that's the first thing. So you start with this body of servants, which is what baptism is. We are baptized into the service of Jesus Christ, which is to uh, a ministry of love, that is outside of itself and for others. Uh, so that's that's the first part. What's the second part? Um, so why do Anglicans require licenses for certain ministries? And what are right. those? Uh, it depends diocese to diocese. Um, licenses are, are a, a function of being ratified by the larger body to take on an official task that, um, for example, if you're going in, in some dioceses, if you're going to assist at the Eucharist, bearing a chalice, giving out communion, that's a licensed ministry. In other dioceses, it's not. 
it's really a decision of the local bishop to decide um, how much they need to uh, train, whether or not people need to take on some responsibilities. There's that a license is also a relationship. A license is a relationship between the bishop who licenses um, and the people who do the work. And the license implies a covenant that you'll do the work faithfully, that you'll work in cooperation with the other people who have to do that work. It's actually right, if you read a license, like for a lay reader, a lay reader is a, a lay person who has taken extra training and leads worship or preaches or sometimes brings the uh, Blessed Sacrament out to the sick in homes. Um, depending on, again, which diocese you're in, different colleges of lay readers do have different, different uh, levels of work. Um, in the Diocese of Brandon, we have three levels of lay readers, and that's all based on their level of training. Um, and the basic lay reader will help lead worship and read scripture. The, the lay reader, too, will have extra training in preaching, and so they'll be able to assist in the parish in, in preaching the word. And the level, uh, lay reader three is almost like a catechist, someone who can uh, teach the faith for preparation for confirmation, uh, can take the sacrament into different homes and things like that. But the reason behind the license is it's kind of a, a the body itself represented by the bishop has ratified this person said, okay, this, this is your particular job and, and it stands as a covenant. This is all like news to me. I well, I see my mom do it like lay reading and I'm like, I have no idea of the process and like what everything means. Well, and this is why it's a good good conversation to have. Because I mean, in my diocese oh, yeah. wouldn't be able to function without lay readers. Our lay readers are a major part of the ministry of the diocese of Brandon. And kind of always have been in, in, in that diocese. Is that correct? We were founded in 1924. We were hived off of the Diocese of Rupertland. And I've been through the files a number of times. And there has never been a time, never since 1924, has there been a time where we had enough clergy to cover all the spots. So where there haven't been clergy who've been able to cover, lay readers have always stepped in. In the North, it's been indigenous catechists who have borne the serious burden of ministry for many, many years until we had um, a larger number of indigenous clergy who have taken on the task themselves. So Brandon has always been a lay-led diocese as far as its ordinary life in the parish. That's pretty cool. Um... There's a, there's a part, I'm sorry, Ryan, I don't even know how to say this word, Di the, the diaconate. Di diaconate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, so can you tell, tell us about the diaconate? Um, my understanding is that there's been a bit of an attempted revival of this office in Anglicanism in recent years. So, yes, but I'm going to correct one word you said. You said office. And it's an order. An order, okay. Order. So depending on how you look at things, I think that there are four orders of ministry. The laity, the deacons, the priests, and the bishops. But if you look in a catechism, you'll say there are three orders of ministry, deacons, priests, and bishops. But I think laity are an order of ministry. And I want you to think about um, the organization of the early church. Where, where in the book of Acts, they, they realize that some people are getting left behind because there's too many people for everyone to be taken care of by the apostles. So they gather together 
And according to the book of Acts, they sort of look around and they, they pick some men, in this case, men, and they make them deacons. And their responsibility is to assist in the assembly. Liturgically, they help proclaim the gospel. Um, in the book of Acts, I if I remember correctly, there are people who have been consistent in their walk with Jesus and have been along for the whole thing, so they understand the proclamation. Um, but they weren't people that Jesus chose as apostles. And so they, they pull some of these guys aside and they lay hands on them and they impart to them a spiritual authority to care for widows and orphans, to make sure that no one gets left behind, to see that the Holy Communion, as it was celebrated in those days, was safely distributed out to larger areas when the, the apostle, the bishop, couldn't get where they were going. Um, and so that's where it started. So I want you to think about the diaconate as if you're looking for deacons, where do you go looking for them? You look somewhere in the laity. You will find there in the laity some latent deacons that the Spirit of God has kind of said, here's one over here, or here's one over here. And, and when, you, when you're in a parish and you meet someone who has such profound gifts of service, they just, they just naturally get, it's not always just about setting up chairs and tearing down chairs, but it's the person who without without a doubt, without a squawk, without looking for thanks or looking for reasons, just gets on with feeding people and clothing people and making sure that no one gets left behind and caring for folks and, and looking outwardly to the place where the church might be so busy doing church stuff that it's not paying attention to what's out in the world. So in the ordinal of deacons, it actually says your job is to interpret the world to the church. That's a deacon's job is to be out there. And it's an order of ministry. It involves, it's a direct relationship with the bishops. When you're a deacon, you are a deacon in a direct relationship with the bishop because you are the person in that parish who is relating and explaining and interpreting the needs of the world to the church. So that's, that's what a deacon is. So how did that direct relationship with, um, with the bishop get uh, set up? Into um, well, it's bishops who ordain, right? So, I mean, a bishop, a bishop is the successor to the apostles. It's it's kind of the next apostle in line, um, and it's it's the the bishop's responsibility to see to ministry being taken care of in the various places, and so it's a bishop's job to sort of unleash in people, their spiritual gifts and say, hey, I see this in you. And then if the church can get together and say, yeah, we see it too, then that person is set apart for the ministry. Okay. I, I guess maybe my question is more like we sometimes see um, deacons, like I, I've run into kind of two kinds of deacons, it seems. Um, oh, there's some, only one. There's only one no, deacons. Uh, no, some that are kind there of are like deacons, attached. Hang on, who have plans. To go and do that are attached to a place and do a work yeah that's their only plan and there are deacons for whom other plans are made right yeah okay one kind is called the transitional deacon the other kind is called a deacon and uh, i'm playing with you a little bit because i know what you want to say and i'm trying to stop you from saying it Oh, no, I was kind of getting at a slightly different thing. I, like I've just run into of of the kind of um, so-called vocational deacons. See, that's I, what I didn't I, want you to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I meet some of them that are kind of, um, they seem to be like kind of 
the bishop sends them to do certain things around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I meet other deacons who are very much just kind of attached to a parish. And they're, they're kind of all, all the time pretty much working there. And I was just kind of wondering like what uh, what the difference is or if that just is just kind of how the how the cards play out. I think it, the big difference is how the bishop sees them and deploys them. Some, some people are raised up uh, as deacons in a particular place for a particular purpose. And they, they say that clearly to the bishop. I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to do something outside of here. This is my neighborhood. This is where I want to serve. This is what I want to do. And others will have that outward, I don't want to be in church on Sunday without having been on the streets the six days before. Right? So Sunday is kind of like the crowning achievement of what has happened all weekend and it's back out into the world. So those are those are differences in ministry, not differences in deacons, if that helps. So when when we need deacons, the bishop and the church kind of cast their eyes to the body of the church, the laity, and say, hmm, who has those charisms? Who do we see? And in Western culture, we look for someone who has had an internal call, and that gets ratified by an external call. Sometimes it goes the other way around. Sometimes there's an external call that you say, hey, we think you should try this. And someone goes, I've never thought of that before. And in time they go, yeah, I, I think I have been called to that. So in our culture, that's generally how that works. All right, cool. Um, okay, so from the book of Acts, uh, it seems that the deacons and priests, oh wait, did we already talk about that? Book of Acts, unless they're in the temple. Fair point are basically uh, equal vocations, uh, yes. yet often the diaconate uh, seems to be used as a stepping stone on the way to becoming a priest or even vocational deacons are often unpaid today. Yeah, yeah I, I guess the, um, are they still kind of seen as, as equal vocations um, or? Well, they are um, by me. Right. And they are supposed to be in the church. Yeah. Now, does it actually play out that way? Well, I, I can't speak for every place. I can only speak for, it's supposed to, but we're a human institution. So human institutions have a bad habit of being human and therefore maybe, fail what they're what supposed to be doing. Maybe uh, you could speak to kind of how um, the diaconate perhaps slipped a little bit uh, in some parts of the church. Well, historically, um, we still had a fairly active diaconate in the Middle Ages, but um, sort of post-Reformation, um, people began to focus on the presbyterate priesthood as a preaching office more than as a sac sacerdotal office, as a, as a priestly office. And um, so deacons, whether or not you were a deacon, a priest, or a priest, eventually you were more useful as a priest because as, as the church spread out over larger geographical areas, deacons don't do sacramental ministry. They don't administer sacraments. And if that is the principal way in which the church is worshiping, then deacons can help with that, but they can't do that. And so what happens is the church began to feel a need over time for this, this, other office called the priesthood, this other, or sorry, this other order called the priesthood, where more spiritual authority would be granted to certain individuals to celebrate the sacraments because the bishop couldn't be everywhere all the time. And 
just like when you need deacon, when you need deacons, you look at the laity and you look around and say, hmm, we got to find us a deacon. When you need a priest, you look at the deacons and say, hmm, where are we going to find a priest? Because that's where priests come from. Priests come from the deacons. And then again, that same, you feel called. Now, lots of people start because in the modern era, lots of people think, I feel called to be a priest because we, we don't think about the diaconate. But with the restoration of the diaconate, people began to think about the diaconate as an equal, co-equal, and effective ministry, an order all itself from itself. And I know lots of deacons who are happy deacons who do amazing work, and I know lots of priests who used to be deacons for long periods of time who simply grew in them that they were meant to do more or meant to do different, and so they talked to the church, the church talked to them, they entered into a period of discernment, and so they were ordained priests. So oftentimes, the way we think about things is a function of just how life has kind of coalesced in the last 150 years. Um, but if you look at our texts, our texts are really pretty deliberate about the differences and the effectiveness and the order of things. And really, the restoration of the, of the diaconate in parishes and in dioceses is a way of regaining that. It's, it's going back and saying, you know, this, this is, I'm really, really glad that I am still a deacon. Uh, an enormous amount of my ministry is still diaconate. And then there's a certain amount of my ministry that is priestly, and then there's another certain amount of my ministry which is Episcopal. But I, I value the fact, I was a deacon for I think eight months before I was uh, ordained a priest, eight months, six, six months or so. Um, and that time was really valuable to me and taught me a lot about service. Because if you have all the trappings of church, you wear the collar, you dress up, you stand at the front, you do the, but you don't do the, the things over there up at the altar, you have to make some sense, some spiritual sense of what, what is it to proclaim the gospel? What is it to lead the people in the intercession? What is it to, what is it to do those things? And how do we build people up to do that? Um, with with the um, the kind of restoration of the diaconate, that, that kind of really, um, I suppose, began in earnest with the, the World Council of Churches really setting that out as a major recommendation uh, in the, the Lima Declaration, correct? I believe so, yeah. I was, yeah. I was uh, let's see, I was probably five years in to my ministry as a priest when the first uh, deacons, kind of deacon deacons, were being ordained in the diocese I was ordained. Okay, that was, so that was late nineties. Um, it's it's interesting to me because when you read the the ordinals, the kind of um, the ceremonies by which priests or deacons or bishops are made, um, they they are very kind of distinct calls in some way. Um, have you ever encountered somebody who feels very strongly called to uh, the work of one, but perhaps the work of a priest, but not the, wor the work of a deacon? Um, and how does that complicate the way that you normally progress through the different kind of offices? Um, just because the way we've kind of structured things in, the, in this kind of these, these yeah. interior calls and that, all that kind of stuff. Well, a lot of that is very much the Western way of thinking. Um, I'm not sure I would really, I don't want to use, well, first of all, the Western church is committed that we are, we believe in cumulative orders, 
right? That you must be, in, in that you must be baptized to be a deacon. You must be a deacon to be a priest and you must be a priest to be a bishop. Um, and if someone feels that they're called to one and not the other, um, then I'm confused because the charism of the diaconate is service. And how can you be a priest if you're not called to service, right? And that the charism of, I, I would actually argue that the charism of each order, the charism of the diaconate is proclamation and service. And the charism of the priesthood to me would be proclamation and sacrifice. And the, and the charism of the episcopate being proclamation and governance. Uh, that's not very sexy charism, quite frankly. Government. <laughs> yeah. um, Who wants to be an administrator, right? Well, no, and and <laughs> that's not really what I mean by governance. That's not what that's what we've turned a lot of modern bishops into. Um, but it's not what we're called to be. Um, so, it's the the reality of apostolic ministry, which is what we claim in the Anglican Church, is its sentness. That's what apostolic means, you're sent. Um, and uh, as a church in all of our ecumenical agreements, we've agreed uh, across our ecumenical agreements and other documents that we believe in cumulative orders. And while that may, that may fog things for some people, say, well, I don't feel called to that. Um, just because you don't feel called doesn't mean you aren't called because call is more than just feelings. Um, and Second of all, um, this is how the church has discerned this over a period of about 2,000 years. So this is how we do it. And sometimes you're just not going to fit into that, and you've got to look to see what it is that the Spirit's trying to teach you in the midst of it all. Well, Jen, what do you think of that? Um, I have a lot to learn still. So clearly. do I. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... Um, like I've grown up in it but like I never actually took the time to actually learn or try to learn about like the like the actual history of the roles so this is actually like really really helpful and then now I can see like where and like why we had a deacon because like I remember oh my goodness I don't even know what year this was many, many years ago when our church was going, transitioning into total ministry. And then we had a deacon. It was, it was a process, I remember. And we had a lot of support, I remember. And, um, but it was just really, I, it was really new to me because I didn't quite understand what it, what this whole new role meant. Well, like it was new for me to see going on at the church, but anyways, I'm gonna go off topic. <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting because what I wasn't raised Anglican. So I was baptized at 21 and became an Anglican. And I loved this stuff and I wanted to learn how the whole thing worked. So I spent a lot of time figuring all this out and asking questions and stuff. But what I learned was this. Um, some of the, the most senior deacons I know became deacons because they were the place people went to get a trusted answer. When there wasn't a member of the clergy around, um, there was this layperson over here who knew what to do. 
And it was what to do with the things of the, the, the pots and pans, the sacred stuff, when, when no one else really knew what was, because a situation had come up and what do we do in this case? This person always seemed to know. They, and that became one of the harbingers, one of the marks of what a deacon was, because they were the person who could give you the right answer. And I don't mean the right answer as to why are we here and who is God, but, but like, when do we do this in church? Or what do we do with this leftover bread? Or how do we dispose of the wine? Or when do we change the candles and stuff? And the deacons were modeled on the Levites in the temple who were in charge of the holy hardware. They were the chief pots and pans people who, who made sure that the worship of the temple was beautiful. And um, the, the sort of most experienced deacons I know are people like that, who just have a love of God's people and a love of the sanctuary coexisting with this desire to serve. So I don't know if that helps or not, but oftentimes there's that one person in the parish. Um, I can, I've got pictures of people in my head. I've got you know, one, one uh, beautiful, beautiful lady in one of my first parishes who her whole life was the altar guild and she loved it. And she knew what to do with every situation, every holiday, how it was, how it was done, what was done in the past, how it used to be done, which she was often ready to tell you about, um, and what could be done. And, and on top of that, there was all the stuff about, you know, the things that I drank up. How do you get wax out of lint, And how to deal with stains. And so that really pragmatic issues. Things like, well, we don't use those chairs in here because, and it's not just it's scuffing the floor, but there will be some really good reason that nobody can really see. Those are always the deacons to me. They're the people who just kind of quietly go about their business and know how the whole thing runs. Yeah, my mom is actually a she does altar guild. Um, so I'm now I have throat. a yeah, <laughs> I have a better appreciation for what she does because usually she would just tell me when I would help her, "Go do this, go do this, go do this," and I'm like, "But why?" Um, See, and I'm that kid growing up who's <laughs> I had to know why, and I wouldn't shut up until I was told why. Because I always, with me, I can always remember better if I understand the why. Oh, yeah. I can remember what I'm supposed to do if I understand why I'm supposed to do it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I hated math growing up. Because they would never explain why anything worked. It was just like, no, this is what, what you have to do. So I quickly jumped ship to the humanities because... I have a, I have a great example for you. I have an auntie, Auntie Betty. Um, and she... Uh, her husband, Jim, had, had died. And for years, she would, they would, in, a, in the most loving way, they would kind of bicker at one another. What are you doing that for? Kind of stuff. Okay. And after Jim died, she, one of the things that always bugged her was he was constantly tying back the gate to the backyard. And it drove her crazy. What are you doing that for? What are you doing that for? And then after he died, the gate wasn't tied back. And then midway through winter, she figured it out because she couldn't get to the garbage cans because the snow and the ice had frozen the gate shut. And all those years, he had just known at a certain time of year, time to tie the gate back. Otherwise, we won't be able to get back to the shed to get the garbage can. And he didn't worry her with it because that was his job. And if she wanted to know why, he wasn't going to be just like, it's just my job. I'm just doing my job. And she thought he was being crazy and particular and fussy and in the end she realized no it was actually very practical yeah absolutely 
Well, uh, we should probably move on to the next uh, order sure. of ministry, um, the priesthood. You're going, and, Jen? Yeah, Jen has, oh. to, Jen has oh, to take off. I just want to, yeah, I just got to leave early. Um, but thank you for this. I've, I've really learned a lot, and I'm going to continue to learn more. Anytime. See you later. Bye. So the priesthood happened because there were enough uh, communities that needed sacramental ministry that the bishop couldn't get to. And so he delegated those responsibilities for sacramental, sacramental ministry to certain learned deacons who he set apart to do this work. And these, these would have been, uh, for, for our New Testament buffs, these would have been what are called presbyters, is that correct? Yes. Or? Yep. Presbyter is just priest writ large, as they say in the Reformation. That's right. Um, so the the sacramental ministry of Anglican priests and uh, I believe several other traditions as well kind of flows from the bishop. Uh, for for those of our listeners who don't come from kind of a, a tradition of apostolic succession and have, they don't have priests or bishops, how how does kind of the Anglican understanding of of a particular person set aside for this role as a priest? How does that square with this kind of other kind of Reformation slogan from, from the New Testament of the priesthood of all believers. Um, well, now, if you want to bring in the Reformation, we, that's a whole graduate course on its own. So don't <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> but my, okay, so um, there is a priesthood amongst all believers um, because in Jesus Christ, we have been made a holy nation. Um, you know, Hebrews goes on at length about it. Um, but there are some who are set apart from within that group to exercise that specific ministry, very much like the deacons. They, they have particular gifts that have been recognized, and they are pulled forward and set apart for that ministry. It's not a contradiction to the priesthood of all believers, because Anglican clergy, priests in particular, are not there to be um, intermediaries they can be, but they're not. The, you don't need the priest to be the intermediary. So it's a it's more of a permissive way of thinking about it. Right. Yes. So it's kind of a you know, particular recognition of some of, in some ways, this this priesthood that we all have by virtue of our baptism. It's, it's certainly a recognition of that, and then it's a it's a, an extension of that ministry delegated to the bishops right. and, and then further delegated outward. Um, you know, it's, you don't need a priest to be absolved of sin. You don't need one. You can have one. And yeah. some people feel greater comfort receiving absolution from a priest, but that doesn't mean that they aren't forgiven if they repent. One, one, of, the, one of the best uh, kind of like grammatical tricks that I picked up recently was um, when thinking about some of the more esoteric church things that are out there, um, we often ask the question, uh, do I have to have that? And maybe the better is, oh, wow, I get to have that. Yeah. Uh, yep. Right. Uh, the, the kind of this difference between necessity and, um, wow, isn't this actually kind of great that we, we have this, this tradition that we can kind of live into? Well, there's, there's also something deep inside human nature about the limits of God's grace. And, and you see that when people question Jesus. 
Um, I call them lawyer questions. Who is my neighbor? How many times must I forgive? That's the, tell me what I have to do. Please, Jesus, tell me the bare minimum I must do. I will tick those boxes for you, and then I'm saved. And that's not, that's not ever how the Christian life is meant to be lived, right? Um, right. The, the, the question, those are the questions of the limits of God's grace, not the depth. And so when people, do I have to be a priest? Well, no, no one's making you. Um, do I have to go to confession? No, no, you don't have to go to confession. All may, some should, none must. Um, you know, those. If, if you're looking for, uh, human beings like to turn things into rules. That's right. If we if we can possibly make um, a permissive system, this is open for you. This is possible for you. Um, we will find a way to turn it into you must do this, and then you must do this, and then you must do this. That's right. Um, one of the things that for, for folks who've run into um, different Anglican priests and maybe priests from other traditions, uh, they might have different ways of addressing priests in particular. Um, yeah. so, some folks might say uh, the reverend, some folks refer to them as father or um, just pastor. What's the, where do these kind of names come from? Uh, you hear them bandied about in different, in different communities. Um, and just, you know, where do they come from? Well, they, they come from history. That's that simple. Um, the reverend is a way of denoting someone in holy orders. And it is treated in language the same way as the honorable is treated. And this is the part where everyone has a train crash in their head. Because you wouldn't walk up to your MP and say, excuse me, honorable. OK? <laughs> Um, <laughs> as much as they might like it. <laughs> well, I won't comment on that. <laughs> Reverend never sits by itself. It always has that in front. It always has the definite article. The Reverend. And it refers to the full name. So um, you never, like Reverend Smith, that is giving his whole family a status that belongs properly to the Reverend X John Smith or whatever. Um, and all of the other variations on this, pastor, et cetera, are all attempts to deal with the sort of usual uh, issue around formalism and title that we've had in, in the English language, especially since the Victorians. Um, pastor is something that has come from the Lutheran tradition um, and it's, it's uh, used in many places, but for Anglicans, pastor is one third of the ordinal's vocation, pastor, priest, and teacher. So um, we haven't found the right thing. Some, I was called father for many years. Some folks object to it. Others don't have a problem with it. Um, I've got uh, female clergy colleagues who I refer to mother uh, as mother, and that's fine with them. Others will you know, peel my face off if I say it. So I'm, I generally will address people as they want to be addressed. Um, and the other titles that are in the church are all connected with various offices. So if you're a canon, 
you've been given a job to do or have been given what's called a taskless thanks by the bishop by being given the title canon as a kind of say you're the measure by which uh, we count success or we count faithfulness or we count something. Um, and archdeacons, archdeacons are um, ironically used to be pure deacons, deacons who yeah. dealt with buildings and property over large areas. Those were archdeacons. Yeah, I kind of wondered how did that how did that um, shift from being you know like it's in the name deacon. And so presumably, uh, if you just come across this word for the first time, you think, oh, this must be a very important deacon. And yet it's almost always a very important priest, uh, Again, which I suppose is also a, a deacon, correct? But um, why, Well, there are archpriests too, but we don't have those in our tradition very often. Okay, what's an archpriest? I've never, I've never come across one of those. Well, in the Roman tradition, an archpriest is a person who's in charge of a large basilica. It's a very, very senior priest. Do we usually and, call those deans? Well, sometimes in the Orthodox tradition, they're called an archiares, which quite literally means an archpriest. Whereas a dean would be the protosingulos, the first among equals, the first among all the clergy of that rank. Okay. So it really depends on history. It, it, it comes down to us. The archdeacons in the Middle Ages were deacons who were, who were people in holy orders who dealt with pots and pans and buildings and roofs and rectories and walls and things like that. And their job was to deal with the business end of church land. Right. Um, so, but today I know often the, the kind of the priest in charge at a, at a cathedral will just kind of automatically become like a dean or a canon or something like that. Uh, the head, the, the, whoever is the dean of a diocese uh, is appointed by the bishop and almost universally, almost, there's always a few exceptions to prove the rule, will be the rector of the cathedral church. Okay. Now, um, I know, I think in your diocese as well, but I know in our diocese, we have something called district deans. Uh, is that kind we of an elaboration? No, we have regional deans. Regional deans, sorry. That uh, might what, be called what, district Rupert's land, I don't know. Okay, what, what's the what's the difference uh, between a regional dean and say like the dean of the diocese? A dean is someone who is kind of organizing an organizing person or organizing principle around which others can can find uh, information. The regional dean is a priest, usually in this diocese, who is kind of like the person who convenes the regional clergy together. Right. The word dean just means first among equals. Okay. Right? Uh, so a cathedral dean is the senior ranking priest in a diocese. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I've been, <laughs> I've been kind of in various places where, you know, you get these different titles across the Anglican Communion that um, don't always... One of the one of the the ranks that uh, I encountered in England, for example, that I've never seen here, but that could just be my lack of experience, um, is something called a canon precentor, often be attached to a. I was one a cathedral. Oh, interesting. What what, what is that role? Um, there are oftentimes canons with specific responsibilities: canon pastors, canon theologians, um, canon historians, canon chancellors. Canon presenters, they are people who have been made part of like the bishop's cabinet 
but they have a particular school of study that's their responsibility. So when I was the canon presenter in my old diocese, I was the person that the bishop would turn to and say, got some questions about this liturgy or someone's asked about this or what's the doctrine of such and such. Um, so that between the canon theologian and the canon presenter, because law of prayer is the law of belief, you would often be able to get a, oh, okay, now I understand. And then the bishop could respond. There are a number okay. of canon presenters in Canada. The reason you may be confused is in England, residentiary canons, that is canons who live at a cathedral or on the cathedral staff will often be one of those four or five titles. Right, yeah. And they will have had the life of the cathedral community divided up so that they have the responsibility for, so the canon sacrist would usually be um, below the presenter, the sacrist would deal with sort of the organizing services and the presenter would be in the planning of the services. Okay. Yes, that that makes sense. And particularly, you know, um, some of the cathedrals there are quite big and still it, that's one of the few places where mm. attendance is still actually quite good often. Um, so it, it would make sense that they'd actually be able to handle a bit bigger staff. Well, remember the cathedrals in England will often have portfolios of land and churches that have been granted them for a thousand years. That's right. And their incomes are not based on what goes on a plate. One, one, of the, one of the hilarious bits about the Diocese of Birmingham where I was living was that they would complain to me that they were a very young diocese and yep. as a result didn't have very much money. And then I got it out of them how old they were and they were like older than the Anglican Church of Canada, right? So, but, oh, yeah. but in co comparison to the surrounding dioceses that really do go back over a thousand years, uh, they, they were right in, in lamenting oh, their youthfulness. Durham, Durham and Winchester are fabulously wealthy dioceses and are able to do ministry based on the income that comes in from gifts that have been given to them as far back as Alfred the Great in Winchester. That's right. Yes. So, uh, Bishop William, you are a bishop. I am uh, a bishop. So you've, you've accumulated uh, all of these orders up to being a bishop now. It was Tell just us. like Pokemon cards. Got it, got it, <laughs> it. You got to get them all, right? <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Um, you, you, you said that you weren't a cradle Anglican. You only uh, came to this expression of the faith uh, as a young adult. So tell us a little bit, just kind of condensed here, how kind of you kind of meandered your way through the various orders and how you found yourself uh, out here in Brandon as, as the okay. diocesan bishop. I, I will do my best to condense that because that's a long story. Um, my father was seedy um, and at sea, he was a sailor, he was an engineer. And my mother was raised Pentecostal. So my dad was at sea and he said, well, you're gonna take the kids to church? And mom said, yes, and we went to Pentecostal church. So that's where I was raised. Um, when I was in university, uh, I was in the faculty of music at Western and they needed singers at the cathedral. <clears throat> so I, it was a paying gig and I went down and started singing and um, I had been ambivalent about church because I didn't really like church very much in the form that I had been raised in it. And uh, I went to St. Paul's Cathedral, London, Ontario, and the liturgy was mostly prayer book, and I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the music, and I fell in love with the beauty, and began to read theology, and finished my undergraduate degree, and then went into seminary and was ordained. How's that for a fast trip? That was five yeah. years. Yeah, wow. Between 
between baptism, uh, baptism was 87, and my ordination to the diaconate and the priesthood was 1992. Well, I, I don't want to make you feel too old, but that was the year I was born. Horrible, hateful child. <laughs> um, so I served in, I was a curate in uh, Simcoe, Ontario, uh, which is down near Port Dover, above Lake Erie. Um, and then I was the rector of Hanover and Durham in Gray County. Then I was the rector of Strathroy and Adelaide in Middlesex County. And then I was moved to be the rector of the chaplain at Huron University College, where I served for 13 and a half years. Um, and I was elected bishop from that spot out here in Brandon. Okay. So how did you, like, you know, Brandon's a bit out of the way from, uh, well, you your, think your life in Ontario. Uh, how did I realize Trans Canada only runs one way from Winnipeg? Right. But I think you'll find we're not that far out of it. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it is. It is a story because um, I had had a number of people say to me, "You'd make a great bishop. You'd make a great bishop." And um, in the case of Brandon, someone phoned me up and said, "We'd like to put you on our list because they had seen me preach and I had spoken at a couple of conferences and things." And I, I did some internal calculations. I was very happy at Huron. I loved my job. I loved working at the university. I loved the students. I loved the sort of day-to-day -day stuff that goes on. Um, but I thought, ah, they've never elected from outside the diocese. They've never elected from the East, nor will they as Western diocese. Why would they elect some smart ass from, or smart aleck from, uh, from a university in the East? Um, they've never elected from outside their diocese. So sure, they can have my name. I'll be ballot fodder. Yes. From ballot fodder to bishop, eh? <laughs> well, we plan and the Holy Spirit laughs. There you so. go. Uh, so what is your what does your day-to-day -day look like as a bishop? Well, the last year has been topsy turvy. Yeah, no uh, kidding. COVID. I'm I'm gonna tell you what my life was like before COVID. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Um, before COVID, it really depended on the time of year. Um, Brandon is enormous. It goes from Churchill in the north in a hockey stick shape south to Thompson, and then on the west side of the lakes, all the way down to the American border. So um, we touch both the 60th and the 49th parallel. That's amazing. Uh, I spend a lot of time in my truck. I drive a lot. I, I try and I've got a number of parishes north of 53, most on reserves. And so I spend a lot of time visiting and driving. Um, I love my work uh, in these parishes. It, it's, it's, I'm, on the, I'm on the road constantly. And then I'll usually get a couple of weeks in the office where I can sort of catch up on the paper and the emails and everything else. One thing COVID has done is it has changed my reputation from someone who never answers his email on time to someone who's right on it because I'm sitting right here. Um, but when I'm on the road, uh, and if I'm in the north, uh, there isn't internet service like there is down here. Um, and uh, you have to be in a community uh, in certain areas or you don't get wireless service at all. And sometimes I'll have to pull over and go into somewhere like the Wolboden and just sit there and answer a few emails and make a few calls and then get back on the road and carry on because I can't do it while I'm moving, even with Bluetooth and everything else because there's just no service. Yeah. So, so with COVID and not being able to really 
um, there's been periods of, of this pandemic where they've straight up just closed off at the 53rd and said, I haven't no. been north. I haven't been in the north since December of uh, 2019. Has it, has it been tough to kind of stay connected to the northern part of the diocese? Uh, it's not tough to stay connected because there's a genuine love and, and, and uh, I genuinely love the folks up there and we keep in touch with with telephone calls and Zoom, but Zoom isn't very good because of course you don't have the high-speed internet unless they're in a particular place. Um, uh, lots of emails, lots of contact that way, but to me, this is not really very good content because we can't sort of sit and smile and laugh um, and tell stories and sit in silence and, and eat together and do the things that the meeting and feasting together is a major portion of what that relationship is. And I miss it terribly. Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> I'm with you on that. The church just has not. Well, nothing about life has really felt the same. I'm so incredibly extroverted. I was, uh, I was reflecting the other day that I went for a bike ride past a group of people, and I got a jolt of energy just from being, like, in proximity to people. So being kind of just like stuck in our houses for the past year has been, been quite the trip. Um, See, and I, some. I, I flip back and forth to be an extrovert and introvert depending on the situation. So I sort of understand that. <laughs> Fair enough. For, for some of our listeners, uh, we have, we have uh, some listeners who, you know, anything from, from Mennonite to, to Anglican. And so some of them might not actually be familiar with what the role of a bishop is. Could you, uh, we've touched a little bit on it in some of our discussions, some of the other orders, but could you just like very quickly kind of tell like, what are the main things that a bishop is supposed to do? The main thing a bishop is meant to do is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to assure for um, basically godly preaching and uh, celebration of the sacraments um, and the good order of the church. Um, and, and that can take a lot of different forms for people. Um, but uh, most of my job is, is making sure people have the resources they need to do their work. And also, like I said earlier, releasing in them things that God has already put there and telling them, no, I see this in you. Um, I'm a resource. I'm meant to lead and teach um, and to direct. Um, my father was a, a, a Navy man and an officer. So his principle of leadership has been very helpful to me. He said, you know, you should never give an order when you can ask. And you should never ask when you probably should give an order. And leadership is knowing the difference. Right. Um, for for, for uh, reform traditions that don't have bishops, they'll have some kind of superintendent who oversees a region. But the difference is that with a bishop, all of the ministry is vested in the bishop. And then the bishop delegates that ministry outward. Um, and it's, it's again, it's back to sentness. I have been sent to the people of Brandon. And so now within Brandon, I send the people out to do the ministry in the various places. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have much of a role in terms of, um, I know the, the, the activities you've described have been very much internal to the diocese, but uh, my impression is that bishops also have a bit of an outward facing role too. Um, yeah, I, I do things institutionally for the church as well. I'm a pension trustee. Those of those of you who are part of the pension plan will be very glad to know that our pension is nice and healthy. <laughs> um, 
I, I serve as the secretary to the House of Bishops, um, which is a position that is basically, I take the minutes and make sure that things are, are sort of informed within the House of Bishops. Um, and that's a meeting of all the Canadian bishops uh, across Canada. Um, but in many ways, for example, I've just, I'm, I was asked if I would be a vaccine, uh, vaccine ambassador. So I've had a piece written about why I was pleased to receive the vaccine and how it's good to receive the vaccine in this COVID time to help take away some resistance people might have. Yeah. But my, my principal job is to, to be sort of reflecting outwardly and pushing the church out of its boundaries and into the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are different kinds of bishops. Um, you are uh, a diocesan bishop, uh, sometimes referred to as the ordinary. Yeah. Um, occasionally, you'll run into some different other kinds of titles. As bigger, more populous dioceses will sometimes have more than one bishop. Um, and sometimes you get these bishops that have kind of fancy names like metropolitan or archbishop or primate. Uh, what, what do these things mean? First of all, there's only one order, and that is a bishop. So being of the order of bishop is the same thing no matter what the title. But the jurisdiction and the office, the work of that bishop can be different. And that's what changes what's in front. So um, <clears throat> an assisting or an assistant bishop is someone who is helping. A suffragan bishop is someone who is elected to be a bishop, but to be a helper. A coadjutor bishop is a bishop who's been elected and consecrated a bishop who will become the diocesan bishop when the diocesan bishop steps down. Uh, an archbishop is a bishop who has been given authority over a bunch of other bishops. A metropolitan is another way of saying an archbishop. But a metropolitan means a particular kind of authority over a group of bishops. And a primate is, depending on which church you're in, the, the head, the national sort of figurehead bishop of the whole church. And they're usually titled an archbishop. But we're all bishops. Right. Just that the work that we do may come with a descriptor or an adjective. Right. So across Canada, we would have all the the most common bishop would probably be the the diocesan bishop. Yep. And then we have we have several archbishops, um, four five. or five, five, and well, that would be for each province. And then of course uh, the primate is also an archbishop. Right. Plus there's a sixth, and that's the the uh, indigenous archbishop. Oh, is he not the fifth? BC Yukon, yeah. Rupertsland, Ontario, Canada, primate. Oh yeah, six. That's right. National Indigenous. National Indigenous. And the um, for our for our listeners, um, the the primate's role is a little bit different than most of the other bishops. Um, yeah, the primate doesn't have any of the authorities of a diocesan bishop. They function as a national spokesperson and as a center of unity. Um, but they, they, can't, they can't visit anywhere without permission because you have to have the permission of the bishop of the place before you can come in. So it's not, it's not a strict pyramidal hierarchy the way some people like to portray it. Um, it the, the primate is the first among all of us, the first in dignity and first among equals. 
And and the primate, um, a big part of the primate's role would be the maintaining communion ties, correct? Yes, international work, especially national and international. That's a job where you spend an awful lot of time in airplanes, I suspect. Right. Yeah. So I guess if it, if you're a bishop and you, you're a travel bug, maybe that's the job for you. It's not a job. I think it's it it is a very very difficult job, which is why we should pray for the primate always. That's right. Um, it's a it's a uh, being a bishop is an impossible job because you're at the same time trying to keep people focused on the ministry, um, clear about the mission, uh, and also stewarding the resources. And those are three simultaneously impossible jobs. Right. Now, so that kind of exhausts uh, the kind of orders and offices uh, that, that Anglicans have. Um, I think the majority of Canadian Christians are actually still Roman Catholic. And so there might be a few other kind of Catholic um, offices and, and orders that people would have heard of that they don't really map neatly onto Anglicanism. I'm thinking of like um, cardinals or sometimes people will ask like, isn't the Archbishop of Canterbury kind of like the Anglican Pope? Um, so for, for people who kind of like, they know we have these kind of figureheads what is the kind of the distinction, uh, the way Anglicans organize versus, say, the way the Roman Catholics do in that way? Authority. It's very simple. Anglicans, the authority is always kept local. Whereas the Roman Church, the authority always moves upward toward His Holiness, the Pope, who has absolute jurisdiction and authority everywhere. And so our bishops have much more um, circumscribed authority? Our bishops, Anglican bishops, have the most authority in their own diocese. Right. And so the and the metropolitans, in some ways, they have certain kinds of authority over diocesan bishops, but not, not uh, kind of Only absolutely. in cases of disciplinary charges. The, the metropolitan's real job is to see that the province is working effectively and keeping you know, keeping the diocese healthy and seeing that resources are spread out properly and that people have what they need. Um, the big chunk in Rupertson, the big chunk of the job of the Metropolitan is to ordain the bishops of Rupertson. Right. So, you know, when an election comes up, the Metropolitan has to run the election and um, the Metropolitan will meet with the, the candidate that, that is successful. And then they have to help plan the, the uh, consecration and make all those arrangements. Right, and our, our Archbishop currently is Archbishop Greg Kerr-Wilson. That's correct. And he's also a diocesan bishop, correct? In in the Anglican Church of Canada, all metropolitans are also diocesan bishops. Okay. Um, now, historically, I think, was was the, the Bishop of Rupertsland not automatically the, um, the metropolitan as well? Historically, yes, but that stopped sometime I think in the early eighties. Okay. Interesting. Moving around. Right. Yeah. Well, now that, you know, Winnipeg's not the, not exactly the most important city in Western Canada anymore. So fair enough. Well, on top of that, um, the other, the other provinces in Canada, the ecclesiastical provinces, the arch, the metropolitan see is moved, right. With whoever is elected. And we were the, we were the odd ones out. Oh, okay. Right. So we just switched it to the way the rest of the church was. Right. Well, um, 
Bishop William, this has been a real pleasure. One of the things that I normally start our conversations with, but I've decided to hold it back to the end, is the thing that we are kind of most interested on in on this podcast is just getting a big snapshot of uh, what faith means to different people. And we've kind of talked together today about uh, kind of your journey through the, the various orders of ministry. And so I was wondering just upon reflection on your experience at kind of all these different levels of the church, what does faith mean to you? Um, faith to me is an understanding that grace underpins the world. Um, faith, uh, I was raised in a, in a tradition that the opposite of faith was doubt. Hmm. Um, as I grew older, I realized, no, the opposite of faith is certain. Um, because we are, if we can be certain about something, you don't need faith. Right. Um, so for me, faith is that assurance uh, which I have about things, about things about which I've been convicted. And I've been convicted that um, the universe is wired for grace, that, that uh, God loves the unlovable and forgives the unforgivable and has done so in me. And so um, that's how I want, that's how I order my world. And um, that's how I reach out with others. It's, it's, I don't need people to believe what I believe. Because I think the Holy Spirit can do a whole lot of work in other people without my help. Right. But I try and focus on living a compassionate and loving, uh, open life. Because I believe that's what the Spirit calls us to. Um, and that my job as a bishop is to proclaim the amazing love of Jesus Christ who showed me this way of grace and mercy. Oh, amen to that. Thank you so much for giving us your time this morning, Bishop, and uh, all the best in your continued ministry out in the Diocese of Brandon. Thanks very much. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review and rating on iTunes and tell your friends.